Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today, I've got a, a very special guest with me, Mr. David Veach. Uh, David is founder and CEO of Leader Sites. He's a teacher, speaker, and author. He works with leaders to help them become more effective. He's had 10 years at Stetson University, the Defense Acquisition University, University of Kentucky, and the Ohio State University. That one's for you, Mike Ryan. He has also worked uh, with the U.S. Postal Service, Owens Corning. Uh, he's worked with Rolls-Royce, just to name a few. Uh, his award-winning books include Leader Sites, Creating Great Leaders Who Create Great Workplaces, The C4 Process, Four Vital Steps to Better Work, First Line, A Team Leader's Guide to Lean Thinking. David is also a husband who's been married for 35 years with three children, two grandchildren, five dogs, a horse, and a herd of deer his wife has adopted to feed through the winter. Last but certainly not least, David is also a Army veteran. David, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your service. Hey, Earl. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've got a lot in common, so I think we'll have some good stories to tell. I, I certainly hope so, and I think the listeners are in for a treat here. And uh, to, to get them started nibbling on that treat, let me give you the uh, first question I give everybody else. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? Well, burden implies some responsibility. And um, the, the yoke of leadership uh, is actually heavy. It should be a burden. Everybody should feel that deep responsibility for the care and well-being of the people in their charge. Um, however, uh, leaders with the right kind of attitude and leaders who behave properly um, really get the benefit of not having that heavy a burden to bear because leaders with the right kind of attitude and behaviors kind of share that burden and allow everybody to participate in this. Yes, the responsibility still falls on them, but they've developed their people to a point where everybody else can help out. And the more people you have helping with that, the less of a burden it becomes. Okay. No, I like that. I like that. So, uh, and, and, you know, that's the thing. It's like over the, the year or so that I've been doing this podcast, it'll be a little over the year by the time this one actually airs. Uh, that's been one of the most rewarding pieces of it is hearing everybody's take on, on the burden of command. And, uh, you know, I, I like how the, the kind of a uniform response keeps yeah. coming back to responsibility. And, uh, you know, I think that's the one thing that I, I wish, and please uh, let me know what you think with your experience, but it's the one thing I wish people would really consider when they start striving for leadership roles is, how much responsibility you are taking on your shoulders. Well, that's right. It's not just a, it's not just a pay raise. It is a, a step change in what you're responsible for. And because you're responsible for people now, not just work, um, that really ups the stakes. Um, because the, the simple focus of leadership is, is you've got to be able to develop your people. And if it doesn't mean you have to be like a platform teacher. You don't have to be the kind of teacher who gets up in front of a, a, a room and does all that good stuff, but it's it's understanding the work that people do, making sure that you're properly challenging them to achieve different levels of success, giving them all the support and the resources that they need to succeed, 
correcting them when they don't, and then uh, encouraging them when they've been corrected too many times. So it's it's um, a, a lot of responsibility, and it really does change the nature of your work once you step from that worker role into that leader role. Yeah, you, you said something that was very key there in my mind is is that uh, correction piece. You know, I see a I see a lot of leaders who do a really good job at, at encouraging and, and uh, pushing along, but they fall short on that, that correction piece. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, um, we set expectations for our folks, or we're supposed to. I mean, leaders who are um, adept at making plans for their organizations and allowing their people to engage in that planning with them so that they know what they're supposed to do every day. We kind of set that expectation of performance. And then a leader's job is to to monitor, to make sure that the people have everything they need to succeed. Not to micromanage, not to make sure they're being busy, not to do, not to be a pain in the butt, but to make sure that they've got everything they need to succeed. And if they don't, uh, the first place you got to look for that is what have you done? Where have you fallen short as a leader in setting that expectation and in defining that standard? Because you know, normally we say, okay, there's a problem, there's the worker. The first thing we want to do is bite that worker's head off. First thing we need to be doing is, okay, how did I fail that person by not giving them clear instructions, uh, not giving them clear outcomes, not giving them the resources they need to succeed? How did I contribute to this failure rather than just saying it was their fault. Um, occasionally, of course, people are people, and it is going to be their fault. Uh, and you've got to be able to sit down and uh, clearly explain the difference between what they did and what you expected them to do and what the standard is. Um, and you can then break that down, and that, that gives you that problem statement. Then we got to figure out what caused that problem statement. So we start asking why this happened, why that happened. Um, and I got to tell you, uh, on the receiving end of that, Earl, it is not a pleasant thing. It's like, you know, one, <laughs> it's like when you're in trouble with your mom and dad, right? It's like, I'd rather have the whipping than the lecture. <laughs> so, <laughs> or just put me in the corner or whatever you're going to do. Just don't make me sit through this lecture. But we owe it to our people to make sure that they understand the true expect the, the true expectation, what the standard is, and to understand that true gap between what they did and what their expectation is and how they can re recover from that. Um, you, you know, one of the things I love that you said there is you made a, a very clear distinction between uh, micromanaging and uh, I'll kind of paraphrase what I heard at least and, and defining success. And what I, I love about that, and this is one of my uh, one of my new favorite quotes. It was uh, one of my guests from season two, uh, Timothy Clark. We were having a very similar discussion in that podcast, and he said, "If you are micromanaging people, you fundamentally do not understand the concept of leadership." I have to agree a hundred percent. I ask groups all the time to make a list of their. Uh, make a list of the things that their best boss did and make a list of the things that their worst boss did. Okay. And universally micromanaging is on the worst boss list. Why are we so prone to that micromanagement tendency? And I think there's a big confusion among leaders, primarily because I think like you do, the, there's a dearth of leadership training and development. So we don't really set our leaders up for success as well as we need to. We haven't taken the time to understand what the needs really are. And we haven't taken the time to understand how best to satisfy those needs in those individual people. And so we, we jump to different conclusions and, and we make bad decisions because we haven't really understood what's going on. Well, yeah. And, you know, and, and the thing that I like and, and, you know, being a being a Marine, it always hurts whenever I uh, whenever I have to quote uh, somebody from the Army. But. <laughs> uh, I got to give uh, George Patton his due when he said, you know, never tell your people what to do. Tell them what needs to be done and get out of their way. And it, it's amazing what organizations miss out on by not doing that simple concept. Because, you know, the, the thing that I have a hard time getting through leaders' heads who like to micromanage is 
if you micromanage, you're going to get the product you would create. If you let people do their thing, you're going to get a product that you probably never even thought was possible, right? I appreciate that. No, I agree with everything. And, and that, that is something that's, that's, uh, something that's confusing in the public is they all have this notion that the Army and the military in general is, is all about command and control leadership. And that, that has not been my experience. Uh, uh, my experience is that we are uh, given a clearly defined vision for where the commander wants us to be when we're finished with a particular mission. So we get that clear commander's intent. Uh, we get a mission that goes along with that. Here's what we're supposed to do. Uh, we make a plan for how we're going to do that. But it's not like every step of the way is planned out because you just don't know. And I think the, the thing that confuses a lot of folks between as leaders is, is they're still accountable and they're still responsible. We talked about that responsibility a little earlier. They're responsible for the outcome, but that doesn't mean that they have to stand over everybody and they have to do the work themselves. And one of the hardest things for a lot of young leaders in particular, or new leaders in particular, is to, to really get to a point where you can let go and let people experience that kind of thing. Um, so... If you're skilled at setting those expectations, if you're skilled at defining that intent, if you're skilled at sharing your vision, if you're skilled at saying, here's the mission we have to accomplish now on the way to achieve that vision, and help people understand the plan that you've made, that if we can do this, this, and this, then we should be able to get to that. But still in the execution, that's on you. You've got to figure out what's the what's going to uh, what's going to help you overcome all the millions of little problems that are in the way that I can't anticipate when we're making plans? Um, of course, the most effective uh, outcomes are always always involve um, input from everybody who's going to be involved in that, right? So um, I, I had very few leaders who just said, "By God, you got to do it this way. Here's the way we're going to do it. Uh, do it my way or hit the highway." I've had very few leaders who did that. They all said, "Okay, well, give me some input. What do you think we ought to do?" Uh, but uh, then, you know, when we made the decision, said, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is the decision. Everybody kind of got behind the decision, and we executed uh, with, uh, with the full force uh, and confidence that we had in a good plan that, that had been properly vetted. Um, I, I, think, I think if leaders learn how to assess the needs of the individuals in their charge, uh, and they can set those challenges appropriately, right? And to me, a, to me, a challenge is a goal that drives a person's skill just a little bit beyond where they are right now, right? So it's it's not like we're gonna we're gonna make this giant leap. It's we're gonna take this small step, right? And we're gonna practice until we achieve that small step, and we can consistently hit that small step. Then we're gonna take another step, and then we're gonna take another step. Now the vision is that giant leap that we want or that we need, but the mission is what's the next small step? What's the next small step? And the relationship you build and defining how far you can take that step is, is something that's crucial in understanding the needs of the people. So um, to me, I've, I've kind of summarized all this stuff in, in three key steps that I call leader sites. Uh, and and a, it's um, love, learn, and let go. Um, so these are three decisions I think leaders need to make every single day before they go and talk to anybody. Okay, I'm going to... Love the folks that I work with. I'm going to love the work that we do. Um, and a lot of people get kind of hung up on this word love. Uh, but to me, it's just uh, a commitment to place the needs of your people above your own. So you satisfy the needs of your people first before you satisfy your own. Um, Simon Sinek says, you know, eat, leaders eat last. I'm sure you were taught that in the Marine Corps because I was taught that in the Army. Um Put your people first, and that is the act of love that I'm looking for. So I'm not looking for group hugs or any stuff like that. It's not smushy. It's not emotional. It's a simple decision and a commitment that you're going to put their needs above your own. Uh, and then the next step is learn. Um, you have to go about and learn what your people need. Right? If you're going to put their needs above your own, you better go and learn what they need. And you can't do this sitting in the office. You have to actually go out and talk to them. Now, you and I are talking right now um, in the middle of uh, the COVID-19 lockdown kind of thing. 
Um, and a lot of people are asking, well, you know, how do I go and do this? It's like, well, that's why we have the technology that we have. That's why we have Microsoft Teams and Zoom and Skype and GoToMeeting and WebEx. We've got all these tools that allow us to go and con make contact with everybody that we're responsible for every single day. Uh, and that's what leaders ought to be doing, making contact every day to make sure they have what they need to be successful, not to make sure they're working, not to bust their chops about something, but to make sure they have everything they need to succeed. Mm. Only then, only then can I think leaders can truly let go. And where we fall, fall um, in this micromanagement discussion is that we are reluctant to let go because we haven't built enough trust in their ability to satisfy that requirement that I am ultimately responsible for as the leader. Um, so all of the foundational groundwork, all of the relationship building, all the, the teaching and development and things, they all have to come first. And then you even have to have systems that allow you as the leader to maintain a sense of control even though you've delegated what you need to delegate and you've let go of that authority so that they can perform and create and innovate and overcome problems and reach a level of success that you probably would never be able to get to yourself. Now, I say that with a little grain of salt because the fear for leaders is I give somebody something I'm responsible for, they screw it up, I'm in trouble. And I don't want that. And if, if it happens one time, then I know that I can do whatever the job is quicker and I can do it at the right quality level to keep everybody out of trouble. So I'll just do it myself. And so we get a lot of leaders doing it themselves. And when they're doing that kind of work themselves, they're not leading. So we got to get them to understand that it's, it's absolutely crucial for the success and the development of the entire organization that they learn to let go of those things and let people have a chance to succeed. Yeah, man, you said so much there that, that, that I loved, and especially that last part, because, you know, whenever, uh, whenever we're giving presentations, I always, always start with uh, this kind of caveat, and I tell people, I said, what I'm about to say is probably going to be the most controversial thing you'll hear me say all day. Teams succeed, leaders fail. And then we go yeah. into this conversation about what you just said. And then, well, you know, what if I, I did this? And I gave this person this responsibility. Okay. Why did you let that person go without the guidance that they needed to ensure that they succeeded? Exactly. That's on you as the leader. And we go through this whole laundry list of uh, excuses but at the end of the day, I, lo I love what you just said there. It's like the, the, the leader shouldn't fear uh, failure because if they're doing their job as a leader, they're going to make sure that failure with everything that's within their control isn't going to happen, right? Yeah. Well, that, that is the idea. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of recognizing that leaders are human too, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I go to a lot of leadership seminars and it's all talking about leaders as if as if they're not human they don't have the same kind of of human needs that everybody else has right um, and so um, I teach leaders um, how to build systems that allow them to understand what is going on in their workplace kind of at a glance so we build these visual management systems throughout the workplace and that gives the leader a sense of control, even when they've they've delegated and they've let go, and their people are working, and their people are making progress, but they can just do a short interval check and go and see the information boards, and they can talk to who they need to talk to, um, and they can do that virtually, and they can do that physically, um, and it gets them out of their office. And we got to get people out of their offices so they can build the relationships they need to build. To create the kind of organizations that are that we're going to need to create for this chaotic future that I'm sure we have in store for us. Oh yeah, I, I love that part. I love, and you know, like I said, that that uh, that that rip you went on there was was good because I, I loved everything you talked about about uh, loving your team, loving yourself. Uh, you know, and and it always it's funny. You know, again, uh, I'm a Marine. My partner's an Army veteran. 
And here we are two, you know, neither one of us are what I would term as small guys standing up here in front of a bunch of people and we throw out the love word and watch these people squirm <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's taboo, right? And, and, and like you said, we're not talking about love. Like we don't want anybody to, uh, to, to cross any boundaries, but you have to, like at, on some level, you have to love your team Absolutely. to want to lead them and take that responsibility on, right? Well, and it's like, um, I would imagine you saw your share of changes of command when you were in the Marine Corps. Right. Uh, I never heard a, a good leader leave without telling everybody how much they loved that job and they loved the soldiers or they loved the Marines they were working with. And and they would say that openly. And this is not it's not a new concept because everybody's familiar with Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Maslow's hierarchy defines the needs that people have from physiological needs up through um, self-esteem and self-actualization needs. Right in the middle in there, in 1943, when he wrote his first human motivation paper, he said those needs that once we satisfy these physiological needs, once we satisfy these basic security needs, then we need to love. And he started with love, and he said we got a really deep need to have a really tight, close, loving connection with a very small group of people, which is, equates with your family. Uh, it can also equate with your team. But then we also have a need to, to have a loving relationship with a larger community. And that's that sense of belonging that we need. So we get that well in the Marine Corps. We get that well in the Army. We feel like we're something bigger than ourselves. We feel like we're something significant and something important. And there's a great deal of satisfaction just in that piece. And now the work that we have to do, that might make things a little different. But we're still part of a great team to begin with. Mm. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly there. And uh, yeah, and you mentioned the belonging piece, and I think yeah. I think that's one piece that gets overlooked a lot. You know, in in uh, recent years, I'll say the last five to ten years. I mean, EEO stuff has been around for a long time, but probably in the last five to ten years, uh, diversity and inclusion has kind of really been a focus. But it, it's that belonging piece that really gels a team. Uh, you know, you can have a diverse team, but if you don't make everybody feel included, uh, that that really doesn't matter. But you also have to make sure everybody feels like they actually belong with the team, right? That, that's right. There's really great strength in that diversity. I mean, we've known that since the founding of the country, right? But even, even a team, the, one of the differences between just a group and a team is that we've, we've built a team with a common goal in mind, but the people on the team have diversity of background, diversity of experience, diversity of perspective, and diversity of thinking styles. Mm -hmm. And we want to build that team with that diversity, but then we've got to build that team so that they can work together despite their differences. And that takes a little time. So you see a lot of teams fail because they just kind of, here's the team, you're going to get thrown on the project, go and do your thing, and then they don't get along. They don't know how to get along. They don't know how to solve problems together. They don't know how to have constructive conversation. They don't know how to correct performance. They don't know how to set proper, appropriate goals. And so, how could they possibly succeed? So, we want to include. We want. We want more diversity. We want to respect more different backgrounds and uh, even ethnicities and ways of thinking. It, it's critical that we get those into the mix. Even the folks who are and you, you all know who they are. They're the weird people. They just think differently, right? And mm-hmm. in many organizations, these are the guys who just get totally shunned. But these are also the folks who can come up with the most out-of-the-box thinking that it might be exactly what we need to get us past a barrier that we might have. Um, if we don't honor that diversity, respect that diversity, and teach people how to get along with that, then we're just setting ourselves up for failure for the future because it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, and and I think you you hit on a big piece there again with that uh, that cognitive diversity, that diversity of thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I think that is a highly undervalued resource right now that 
is sadly, when I say uh, sadly, it's underutilized because every organization has it. At the very least, they have cognitive diversity. They're just not that intentional about how they put it to work and how they assemble these teams, right? Well, we, we, we reinforce the group think. Um, if I'm the leader and um, I want to do things my way uh, and you come along and you've got a different way to do it, uh, my natural human tendency is to shut you down and make you do it my way. And if we reward that kind of behavior by promoting that leader to some other responsibility, um, then we've reinforced that that's the right way to develop people. And it sneaks up on people, and it can happen in any organization. I guess the most famous example is uh, is with the um, the Challenger disaster, right, where the the investigation found that NASA had kind of cultivated this culture of groupthink where people were afraid to point out anything that might be different from what the leadership wanted to hear. And I've seen this in other organizations pervasively. You got a leader who dominates, people are afraid to tell them something different. Um, even if it's a leader who's willing to hear these things, if they, the organization has a history of leaders who haven't, there's going to be that great fear. And so the leader has a much more difficult time trying to overcome that past culture. And so I think every organization is a candidate for culture change, um, which is never easy. Talked about a lot, but uh, I'm just pretty sure you can't talk your way into a culture change. Too many things you got to do. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And, and, uh, yeah, you, you said a lot there again, going back to, to NASA and, and you know, the sad part about the Challenger uh, disaster is, you know, that wasn't the first time that had been a problem for NASA. You know, yeah. they essentially had the same issue that led to the Apollo 1 disaster. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, so it's easy, even once you, it's why well, I like what you just said there, every organization is, is a candidate for culture change. Because even though they'd already went through that, they'd solved that problem once before, had a long period of, of success, they fell right back into that same trap. And you know, I think you've got a lot of organizations out there who don't realize what you just said, that every organization is, uh, is, is ripe for culture change, even if you have a good culture. Yeah. Uh, culture is not one of those things that... Uh, you know, the old saying, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That doesn't apply to culture. Just because it's working great doesn't mean you let it, need to let it stagnate, right? Well, and that's what happens. The, I mean, the situations that we find ourselves in, the environment is going to change whether our organization changes or not. And if, if the environment changes and the organization isn't dynamic and resilient enough to make a change, then it's just going to be bowled over. And so we can't afford to do that. And with the pace of change these days... Uh, we have, uh, I mean, we, we're still teaching leaders that there's a distinct beginning, a middle, and an end in this change management kind of system. But we're not changing from one way of working anymore to another way of working anymore. Now, change is coming so fast that every day, the way we work is change. So we've got to be able to, uh, how, do you, how do you drive stability in an organization that's constantly changing like that? Uh, because people need that sense of stability, that sense of control, and we've got to have enough stability so that we can learn and that we can define where we are so we know what we what our next step is. Uh, but the whole organization needs to be sensing everything that, that's going on, and the whole organization needs to be learning continuously so that as quickly as something outside changes that's going to affect us, we can adapt and we can respond to that change with an effective strategy and something that's going to propel us forward instead of shove us back. And I think that's going to require critical thinking skills and systems that allow us to sense problems much more quickly. And it's going to require leaders to honestly assess their own capability, particularly with their ability to trust people 
to work and our ability to set a clear goal and a clear vision. And, and if leaders can't do that, then we're just going to be way too slow. We've got to be able to get input from everybody who's got a brain that can think, that can see problems, and can immediately start to solve problems, and then pull in the right people who are going to help them solve the problem without having to say, all right, we got to go to the leader, we got to tell the leader, now we got to wait for her to decide, or him to decide, or whatever. Uh, we don't have time for that. We've got we to gotta move. And if we haven't prepared our organization for that, uh, we're going to be in for some trouble. Well, you, and, and agree with that 100%. And, and earlier you... Uh... You mentioned uh, visual management systems and enabling leaders to, uh, you know, get out of their office and, and be with the crowd uh, a little more. Um, do me a favor uh, for the folks who may not be fully aware, uh, just a brief overview of like how, how a visual management system, what it might look like, and then why is it important to free those leaders up? To, to be able to do something besides sit in their office and track things the old-fashioned way. Yeah, get on my computer and go, go dig through things. <laughs> dig through the database, yeah. Right. Uh, well, uh, visual management kind of flows from basic lean principles um, like workplace organization. Um, in your home and in your workplace, you want to have ready access to the things that you're going to need on a frequent basis to prepare meals or to do your job, right? So we want to organize things. So we put at home, you know, we put all the knives in one spot. We put uh, all the bowls in one spot and we know that all the ingredients are someplace else. So I can go immediately when when somebody wants to, uh, to bake a cake, they know exactly where to go to get everything they need to bake a cake. And it's not like you have to waste a lot of time hunting. Well, if you look at most workplaces, they aren't organized like that. People have little hordes of things all over the place. So when it's time to bake a cake, or when it's time to do a particular job, they're going to waste a lot of time searching for those things. The biggest thing that we are assembling anymore these days is information. Mm. And information has to be properly organized just the same as any physical stuff has to be organized. And so we want to have a kind of broad categories of the key things that are most important to the organization. Um, and I come from the lean world, and, and it's always safety, and then quality, and then cost, and then delivery, uh, sometimes productivity, sometimes morale of the people, um, always development of the people. Okay, so we've got these broad categories that every company has uh, even in the in their public-facing public organizations, um, they've all got goals that they want to achieve, uh, but we rarely tie the the corporate goals to the work that the people are doing uh, down in the trenches, delivering value to customers. Um, so our visual management system needs to understand how those goals cascade through the departments and divisions uh, to the uh, focus areas to the supervisors areas to the teams um, so when a team knows that uh, I've got to I've got to finish um, 17 claims adjustments in the insurance company today to help the organization achieve its profitability goal of X percent this year and as a team member down delivering that value I need to understand how the work that I'm doing affects that company. And the visual management system gives you that both up and down. You should be able to see that. And, and I want to be able to just look up from my desk and see how far along my team is on achieving the goals the team has for the day. And so that needs to be on a board someplace. And then that board needs to, to be combined with the other teams at my same level to take another tier up. And there'll be a different set of uh, metrics that that next tier is going to need so that they can make decisions to, to support the organizations that need additional help, the teams that need additional help, or so they can sense very quickly the teams that, that may be having problems that they can't seem to overcome. So one of the key things in a visual management system is it needs to be able to expose problems 
rather than hide problems. And believe me, over the past 150 years of work, we've found genius ways to hide problems or to find anything that says it's not my fault, it's not my problem, and protect ourselves and cover our backsides, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so we're, we're, there's infinite creativity in finding those kinds of excuses. So it, it's going to take some some serious creativity on the part of the leaders and the teams to make it clear that it, it's okay to have a problem. It's okay to share that problem. It's okay. It's a good thing when problems are visible because if they're not visible, then you're struggling yourselves. You're miserable as a worker. The team is not performing the way they're supposed to team. The leader's miserable because he or she can't figure out what, what's going on. Um, so hiding problems just never helps us. It always makes things worse. Uh, but people are so afraid because historically we've punished whoever has been closest to any problem there is. Um, so we've got to build these visual management systems that encourage people to report to problems and actually celebrate, celebrate people who report to problems. Yeah. Um, and then we'll start working on, well, what are we going to do about those problems? Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves lately is, you know, I grew up um, hearing a bunch of leaders say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And um, I, I just think that is the, the most demoralizing thing a leader can do. So bring me problems, and together we'll work on the solutions. Uh, if you've got a solution, share it. We call those ideas, right? If you've got an idea, let's share that. And if, if we can find a problem that that idea solves, it's a good idea. I don't have to do a feasibility study and all that stuff to determine whether the idea is good. If it solves this problem you're having, it's a good idea. Let's put it in place. Um, so we've got to get, to, we've got to get our organizations to the point where they, they enjoy that and they, they celebrate that visibility. And, and the visual management system is, is all designed to help you do that. Nice. Nice. No, I, I like that because I'd heard the same thing too. Don't bring me problems, yeah. bring me solutions. And, and you know, I, I'm kind of with you, you know, because just it's not always the person, uh, the person who identifies the problem doesn't always have the skill set to come up with a solution, right? Exactly. And that doesn't mean that they should stay quiet. Uh, but that's what we've taught them to do. Hey, if you don't have a solution to it, just don't say anything. Right. And then it's like, okay, the problem's going to fester and it's going to bite us in the butt. We can't have that. That uh, that that was you know another one of my favorite NASA stories. I, I like a lot of the leadership lessons that NASA has uncovered over their history, and it was the uh, I can never remember the number. I think it was the the two hundred eight alarm uh, during the Apollo thirteen uh, mission, and uh, you know a lot of people because you know everybody watches movies or uh, does audio books these days, but uh, you know a lot of people kind of missed it in the the movie because they 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 did a, such a smooth job of inserting it, but. If you read Gene Cran's work on that, you know, that, that engineer that, that, you know, all he said was, you know, just flip the auxiliary switch off and then back on. Yeah. But it was, you know, what they miss is that this was kind of a low-ranking engineer. He had really no authority as we perceive it. But as soon as he got on the radio and said, toggle the switch, nobody questioned him. They just did it, and it fixed the problem. And it's hard to get an organization, uh, we talked about trust before, to, to look past, uh, to, to look at the possibility, let me say, that the, the, the newest person to walk through the door may have the best solution to the answer or to the problem at hand, right? Well, the, the coolest thing about that is they, they haven't learned all the compliance routines, so right. they don't know why you do things. So that's the time to start asking them, hey, what would you do different? Yeah. When they start saying, well, why do you do it this way? And you say, well, oh, that's the way we've always done it. Well, you're not making very much progress that way. <laughs> I, uh, I share a story in uh, the, kind of the second half of the first season about, uh, have you ever heard of a gentleman named Cliff Young? Um, no. No, so Cliff Young. Uh, don't worry, not a lot of people have. Uh, I actually <laughs> like, found. What was that? 
I was like, should I be writing this down? Oh my God, who is this? I mean, I think it's a great story. And I actually hadn't heard of him until uh, I was listening to the Team Never Quit podcast. And he actually kind of shared his story. And I I listened to it and I kind of stole it from them. Cool. But uh, Cliff Young, he was a uh, sheep farmer in uh, Australia. And uh, I want to say he was in his early 60s. And uh, for some reason, the year 72 comes to mind. Um, but anyways, they were having an ultra marathon. It was like a 500-mile run from, uh, I think it was Sydney to Melbourne. Oof. And uh, he shows up. You know, everybody's there with their tennis shoes and their running gear and doing the stretches and all the, the fancy stuff uh, for the time. And old Cliff shows up with his teeth out, uh, wearing coveralls, and uh, uh, we would call them, you know, muck boots, or uh, they call them their gum boots. And, uh, you know, he's there, ready to run, signs up, ready to run. And everybody's looking at him like he's he's crazy, like the the news uh, the news channels focused in on him because he was out of you know so out of uh, focus with what everybody else was, and they started asking him some questions, and he's like, you know, why did you want to run in the marathon today? He's like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to do this. I just figured I'd give it a try before I couldn't anymore. And so the way the story goes is, you know, the runners are kind of giving the side eye the whole nine yards, and. You know, they, they think it's just there for, for the fun of it all. And they take off, and sure enough, they leave Oak Cliff behind. And uh, second day comes up, nobody sees Cliff, none of the runners see Cliff. They get, I think it was the third or fourth day, and uh, it's the end of the race, and Cliff won. He, he won the race by, I want to say, it was something like 12 hours. And he finished uh, something like a full day and a half or two days before uh, the previous record. Good Lord. And yeah, Right? And, and what had happened was, what you just said, he didn't know what he was supposed to do and what he wasn't supposed to do. And Cliff ran the entire way without stopping. You know, I mean, they, they gave yeah. him the food and water on the... On the way, but he ran the entire thing. He didn't run for 16 hours and sleep for eight or what the, the elite athletes did. He just, he did what he thought he should do. And he, he said what was, he was supposed to do. I love that. <laughs> right. Well, he, he uh, what was the, the interesting part about it is, is to this day, if you uh, talk to anybody who's an ultra marathoner, like they don't call it the Cliff Young shuffle anymore, but his running style and way he did became the new normal because they did all these studies about how it conserved energy and yada, yada, yada. They scienced up what Cliff knew. Because growing up as a sheep farmer, shepherd, uh, when his when there were storms that was coming through and they needed to round up the sheep, he had to run the 2,000 plus acres to round up the sheep. So he kind of developed this thing on his own without any guidance. Brilliant. That yeah. is a great story. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> But we miss out on that because, like you said, we like to institutionalize thinking and we like to, to kind of put a clamp on free thinking for some reason. Well, that seems to be the whole onboarding process most organizations have adopted. Is how can we make sure that your diversity gets mashed into our little envelope? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and uh, if we've got those structures that allow that to continue happening, we're going to get what we always got. So right. if we need something different, we're going to have to break that system yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, again, and uh, speaking of that, we're talking about the getting the leaders out of their offices. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people here uh, listening, maybe not my longtime listeners. I think they've, they've kind of figured this part out by now. But you mean a leader is uh, supposed to leave their office for something other than yelling and screaming at somebody? <laughs> Yeah, I think it, I think leaders who yell and scream are the worst failures on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got to yell and scream, that means you have failed in understanding what work is going on and where it is, and uh, that's on you, not on your people. So, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a the great probably the greatest way to violate trust is to to yell because that is really a it is an indication of a lack of respect, right? And respect is one of the two foundations 
of lean. We got um, respect for people and continuous improvement, kind of make the world go around. Um, none of that really happens if you can't build trust. I mean, practically build trust. And when we talk about trust kind of offhand, like everybody's just supposed to know this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, well, keep your promises, do what you're told, things like that. Um, but that, that's not really all that's involved in that. Uh, trust is a lot more people are studying trust and a lot more people are understanding that, that there are some practical and physical things that we can do that actually promote trust. And you and I have been kind of talking around um, these a lot because one of the fundamental thing is, uh, is expectations, clarity of expectations. Now, uh, for most organizations, we go from that one-sided perspective. I'm the leader. I want to make sure that my people know what my expectations are of them so that then they can succeed, right? Right. But that's only half of that relationship. Uh, we don't teach leaders that they need to shut up and listen to their people's expectations of them as a leader. So, yeah, we've got tools and all kinds of stuff that allow us to, to clarify our expectations of their performance. But how many tools do we really have that really demand that a leader ask for and listen to the expectations of their people, of their own leadership? So that's something we kind of have to build into this leadership development structure. Uh, once we get up to a point where we can communicate expectations both ways, uh, then success comes from a commitment to satisfying those expectations. Uh, and in the relationship complexity, um, the way toward that is for the leader, the one in the power position, right, that, which is always going to be the leader. Uh, the leader has to uh, make himself or herself vulnerable to the performance of their people. So there's a, a vulnerability is a huge piece of building trust because that's what makes people believe that you believe in them. Okay, so I'm responsible for this, but I'm going to let you do this. I'm putting myself at risk to let you do this. And that's the task side of it. But how many leaders are building relationships on a more personal level? You know, we want people to understand what you're about as the leader, right? Who are you? Where you came from? And be willing to share that. You can't cultivate that kind of relationship by sitting in your office or waiting for people to come in or scheduling one-on-one -on -one appointments where they come to your office and you sit down and you give them feedback on the performance. Okay, so you got to get your butt out there. We call it go to the Gimba, right? The Gimba is the real place, right? It's the place where value is created. Um, so we want leaders to spend the majority of their time in the Gimba. Uh, Tom Peters talks about management by walking around. Again, that's been a long time, right? Right. Uh, and um, he says uh, you don't uh, you don't necessarily have to have a defined purpose for that. You just go out, you talk to people, and you make relationships. Um, these days, uh, I think um, there are a couple different purposes that you can have. Um, every one of them has to start with a foundation of I'm going to build trust, but I'm also going to understand that the system is working right. Okay. Um, I'm going to build relationships, but I might look at need, need to look at one specific process that may or may not be performing or maybe a candidate for improvement. So I can go in and look at one particular process and the people in that process. Or I can go on a gimbal walk and build trust, but I'm going to focus on one particular problem spot. So I can do a problem-solving gimbal walk, I can do a process gimbal walk, or I can do a system gimbal walk. All of these try to understand what's going on in the system, but they're also to interact with the people in the workplace. Uh, a lot of people freak out because they got so many emails and there's so many reports and there's so many meetings and there's so many phone calls. How am I supposed to do all this stuff? It's like, well, that's your, that's your job. All right. right. 
That's your job. You got to figure that crap out. Now, half of the stuff that we have leaders doing is absolutely no value and nobody really cares about it anyway. And one of the, I heard a story or two about, uh, I used to have to do this report every month, right? Every month. And then I quit doing it. I, I, something happened. I got sick and I didn't do it one month and nobody said anything. And so the next month came around and I deliberately didn't do it and nobody said anything. And maybe six months later, somebody came by and said, didn't you used to do this thing? I said, yeah, but I haven't done it in six months. Oh, well, I guess don't we need to, we don't need to do that anymore. Um, how many reports, how many processes do we have that have people doing that kind of stuff that just nobody cares about? You don't really need to do that. It doesn't add any value to the organization. Right. Uh, and that's uh, another key word that I want to focus on for you, Earl, is, is value, right? Okay. Um, we talk about lean systems a lot, and lean comes from Toyota. Toyota is all about eliminating waste, right? Right. And waste, of course, is the opposite of value. Um, and I'm trying to teach people that if you just focus on the waste, it's a very reductionist kind of approach. It doesn't really build people up. When you go and you ask people, hey, where are you wasting our resources today? That is not nearly as friendly as, hey, what's keeping you from adding more value? Mm. Um, so I, I encourage people to focus on what is the value that has to be created. And then anything else, you're doing anything else, you can eliminate all that. Focus on the value. What's the best way to deliver that value? And quit doing all that other stupid stuff. Uh, and you'll see how much better you can get pretty quickly. But then I ask leaders, how do you add value? You know, and if you use a definition that a customer, a value is what a customer is willing to pay for, which most people do, then leadership is non-value added. So how then do we define customers for leaders and listen to the customer's value proposition so that we know as leaders how we add value to the organization. And what I've learned is the only way leaders can add value is if you're developing skills in your people. Right. I tell you what, what you just said there like resonated with me because there's a, and you know, a lot of these stories, you never know how much of it is a hundred percent truth and how much of it is legend. But uh, there, there's a story about uh, Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A uh, and, and he was doing an interview, and, and somebody asked him a question. It's like, how many customers do you have? And he rattled off a number. I don't remember the exact number. It was like 6,382. Yeah. And, and the reporter, you know, looked at him confused. Like, you're the, the second fast food chain in the country. How do you only have 6,382 Surely you've customers? got millions and millions of customers. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and uh, that, that's exactly what they said. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, those are the customers for my customers. Those 6,382 people are how many employees I have. Those are my customers. That, that's the way to look at it. Yeah. I thought that was great. Um, yeah. You know, and, and again, I, 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 I know a lot of people because, you know, the, the, the lean Six Sigma process is kind of a, uh, I'm throwing up air quotes here, is kind of an older system now to a lot of people, but it's still very valuable, you know, that, that, and if you boil it down to just the, the, the Kaizen piece, the, the continual improvement, uh, it doesn't have to be Herculean. It doesn't have to be game-changing. But improvement is improvement, right? Absolutely. And everything, everything can be improved, particularly yeah. the way you lead. But you just have to acknowledge there's something that you can do better. And you got to figure out what it is that you want to do better enlist your people to help you build a plan so that you can be better in that one thing that you want to be better at and then practice. Yep. It's that simple. Well, David, uh, we've been, <laughs> believe it or not, we've been talking here for a little over 50 minutes and, uh, you know, we thought at the onset, this was going to be a nice, easy conversation. It sure enough has been. Uh, but, but I want to, I want to give you an opportunity, uh, if there's something that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to touch on, what would that be? Uh, we, we covered the gamut pretty well, I think, Earl. That was, uh, I mean, there's more detail in, in virtually everything that we talked about, of course. Um, but, no, I was, I was very happy with the way things flew out. And um, 
I lost track of time completely, so I've had a good time. I do want to. I do want to make your your listeners an offer. Okay. Um, I want um, you. I've got two books that have been published, and one one's a the first one was a learning system. Um, I would like to give a free copy of the C four process to all of your listeners. Um, it's a digital copy, and I'll have a landing page created for the podcast that you can put in the podcast notes. Okay. But it'll be like leadersites.com um, slash the burden of command podcast. Mm. And if they, they can click on that link and they can go to my website and download um, a copy of the, the full book, the C4 process, which is a, a book that first identifies key principles of this kind of excellent system. And, and lean is the foundation, but if we if we focus on principles that are universally applicable, I don't really care what you call it. Okay, right. we want to get better, right? Um, but the C four process um, is a problem solving methodology uh, that is based on the plan, do, check, act methodology that Schuert and Deming taught us back in the '30s and '40s and '50s and '60s, um, but I started teaching that you know in the 80s, and I've always had trouble with the plan part. Um, people want to shortcut the plan and get straight to doing something, and so I said if we if we if we structure this a little bit differently, so we have a concern, we identify the concern first. We don't do anything until we really understand what the concern is, what's the problem. Once we have that concern defined, then we can figure out what the cause is. Once we figure out the cause, then we can do figure out the countermeasures to do something about it. And once we've implemented the countermeasures, we need to confirm that they've worked. Um, so C4, I like the idea of C4. You know, in the military, we blow stuff off of C4, so maybe we get explosive results with our problem solving. But yeah, I'd like to give like to give everybody a free copy of the book. And there's also a couple other little hints. There's uh, helpful things. There's a there's a worksheet that they can have and they can download that kind of takes them through the process on on one sheet. And then I've got a C4 card. Uh, that is a tool that individuals at the value creation level can use to write down a problem or write down an idea. Mm. And they post it on a visual board for the team, and then the team leader can grab that when he or she is making their rounds and go and have a conversation about that problem with that individual. And it teaches them how to talk to each other, and it teaches them how to think critically about the problem, and it teaches them how to, to build that relationship and, and make a difference to the workplace. So I, I'd like to offer those free to your readers, and uh, I'm, I'd be happy to come and speak to uh, organizations about problem-solving, leaner leadership anytime. You, you can see I have a hard time shutting up about it, so uh, I'd love to talk to people about that. Hey, no, that's a, that's a good old Southerner <laughs> thing, right? Is uh, we, 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 we says the, the old joke about, uh, you know, it takes us two hours to get out the door when we say we're ready to go, right? Uh, but no, I thank you very much for that. I really do appreciate that. And, and I'll definitely get those links up. And uh, real quick, uh, what are your, uh, your website and how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, the website is, uh, is leadersites.com and that's uh, leader, S-I-G-H-T-S dot uh, com. Um, on there, there's a contact thing. They can c contact me through the website, or you can send me an email at david.veach at leadersites.com. And that's V as in Victor, double E-C-H. I'd love to hear from your folks. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for, for, for that information. And thank you for those gifts. And, uh, really appreciate it. And I'll definitely get all that in the show notes. Uh, uh, hopefully get some people your way. And, and, uh, uh when you, Take advantage of those free gifts, and you go through them. Be sure uh, to to let David know uh, what you got out of it, and uh, you know, get in touch with him. Uh, I think uh, he could do wonders for your organization. So, you know, David, I really appreciate uh, the discussion, and uh, you know, thank you for spending uh, pretty much the last hour or so with with uh, me and my listeners. Really appreciate that was a, it. It was a great conversation, Earl. I really appreciate it. I hope we can get a chance to do it again, maybe sometime in the future. I think we're going to have to. I think we left, uh, as, like you said, we covered the gambit, but I think we left a lot of fruit on that tree. I think so. <laughs> so, well, all right. Well, again, thank you very much, and, and thank you for my listeners for uh, for sticking with us through this. I hope you got as much value out of it as, as I did. It was a great conversation for myself. 
if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, really look forward to it. Make sure you're rating and reviewing the show. We really thrive on those. It helps get uh, more visibility on all the various platforms and get all of my great guests uh, uh, messages to more people. Uh, with that, thank you very much, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.